actually going to come out from behind the table for a bit. Thank you all so much for being here. Most of you I'm related to. <laughs> Those of you that I'm not, you get extra points for being here as well. I always say that the book, in some respects, is a bit of an exercise in narcissism. Um, it's sort of that dinner party joke, enough about you, let's talk about, or enough about me, let's talk about you. What do you think of me? In some respects, what started me down the road of writing the book was listening to what my students had to say about me and other American women that they were interacting with in Hong Kong. And as I started listening more and more, it wasn't just my students that were talking to me about American women, it was other people as well. So I started, I'm in American studies and in the US history. And so this became a way for me to enliven my teaching, but then really listen. And any of you, we've all, if you live in Washington DC, you have cross-cultural encounters every day. We've all had the experience of living in or being in a place where you are different and you are changed by that encounter. So the book is about several women who had cross-cultural encounters in Hong Kong and were changed by first growing up in the US and coming to Hong Kong and thinking about what it meant to be American in a different context. It's also about women, when you get to the later part of the book, it's about women who grow up in Hong Kong and then are educated in the US and come back to Hong Kong and they are seen by their families honestly as damaged goods a little bit. <laughs> They've been Americanized and although there is a desire for them to be educated and take advantage of certain aspects of the US educational system, for women particularly when they return to Hong Kong, there's a bit of concern that they have been too Americanized. And so there are some very positive messages that go with being an American woman in Hong Kong, but there are some negative messages as well. And then there's also the whole question of virtual American women. A lot of my students will say to me, I'm assuming that American women are a lot like those women that we see in Desperate Housewives or on Friends, right? Those were the pop culture texts that were sort of the go-to texts during the time that I wrote the book. So as I started going back and looking at where did these stereotypes of American women come from, they start really early. They're accentuated in our time by popular culture, by the fact that there's travel and education back and forth, but from a very early period there was this idea that there's something special or unique and not always good <laughs> about being an American woman. So I look at both sides of that. I want to say something about the title, Troubling American Women. We joke about there are many types of troubling, and the first type of troubling is actually bossy. So <laughs> I am a troubling American woman in the bossy way. I'm not going to lie. When I first arrived there, I found myself being a bit demanding or having expectations of the way people should treat me. So one example of that is my husband and I were shopping in a mall in Hong Kong, and I paid for the item. and. The gentleman who was the cashier handed my husband the change and he got a lecture on why are you giving him the change? That's my money. And you know, the poor guy, he looked at me like, really? I didn't want to hurt anybody. I just wanted to give you your change back and your husband is part of this unit and I gave the money to him. But I, for me, the American feminist in me had to preach at him a little bit. Turns out I'm not alone. <laughs> Other people do that as well, and they've been doing it for a while. So version number one of troubling 
is preaching, maybe a little bit bossy, well-intentioned, but not always tuned into the cultural dynamics or not always aware that, that there might be many ways to read a situation. And that's sort of troubling, I think, as Americans right now, we have to be aware of. And there's this big debate in the, you know, between the GOP candidates and the Democrats about when we go abroad, when we talk about who we are as an American population abroad, how do we tell our story? And there's been criticism that perhaps our president has apologized for America abroad. I don't agree. I think we have to be careful about how we present ourselves abroad. But that's a debate for another day. This, what is relevant here is this notion of American exceptionalism bubbles through all of these narratives. Women who go to Asia, who take with them this idea that there is something unique or special or different about an American ideology, US culture, and then how that plays out in Hong Kong. So that's the first version of troubling. And that goes with the dictionary definition of to annoy, vex, or bother. <laughs> the second definition is to disturb the mental calm and contentment of something. Now, that version of troubling gets, uh, for me, gets a little bit more interesting. There's a strong ethos of harmony in Hong Kong. And you can argue that this plays itself out in other Asian cultures as well, and we can spill into generalizations very easily, and I don't want to do that. But in Hong Kong, there's a strong cultural value placed on harmonizing, on getting along, on not, not making too much of yourself. So an American style, which can be more direct or more assertive, is not as valued. And ethnically Chinese women who come back to Hong Kong after having some experience in the US have to do their own negotiations in terms of how much they harmonize. They feel strongly that they've learned different sorts of stylistic techniques and they have to live within families and workplaces and communities, but it's not always easy. So to disturb the mental calm of the harmony ethos in Hong Kong is something that I've seen ethnically Chinese women do and I write about that a little bit in the text. And that is something also that links to pop culture in the sense that in the Cold War period, lots of Hong Kong films were made by local Hong Kong um, artists, movie stars, who were funded partially by the United States government. And so you had a presentation of American women as being independent and leading out and being... The, the only comparison I can make, those of you who are aware of the Gidget movies and um, Annette Funicello's Beach Blanket Bingo and 1950s movies that so, show spunky American women, those movies have their counterpart in Hong Kong in the 1950s and 60s. And what you have in that period is you have Hong Kong filmmakers working with American government officials showing spunky Hong Kong women that talk and act a lot like those American women we're seeing in Hollywood, except there are very Chinese messages. So a film like Mambo Girl or a film like Air Hostess or June Bride, these are films made by the local Hong Kong Cafe studio featuring a woman named Grace Chang, 
who is a singer, she's a dancer, and she talks about how we can do the mambo and we can do the twist, but we can do it in ways that still honor our Chinese heritage. And so it's this most amazing mix of American pop culture and brassy, spunky American womanhood, but toned down in a certain way to still honor um, typical or traditional Chinese values. The message here is Hong Kong is a place that is not the mainland. It is not communist. It is a place where we can promote American democracy, where we can promote a safe form of youth culture. It's not those kids who are going crazy in the U.S. with rock and roll music and then later civil rights, women's rights, anti-war movement, but it's just enough freedom that we're not communist China. So it promotes um, an increased commercial culture in China. It promotes burgeoning industrialization in Hong Kong. And it says you can be a little American and still safe. And you don't have to be too American. So the second sort of troubling then is it's not harmonious in the same way. It's troubling a little bit with the cultural ethos, but it's not um, bull in the china shop, sort of troubling like definition number one. Definition number three, I think, is the most important for our purposes here today in this beautiful space where we have the Portraiture Now exhibit, where we see a range of Asian American identities and narratives being expressed. How many of you have had a chance to see the exhibit? All right, if you haven't, please take time after and go, go look at it. It's the most extraordinary gathering of troubling American women in the best possible way, in the third way. And that is to agitate or to stir up so as to make turbid, as in water or wine. And so in terms of that definition, what we see is a collection of Asian American women and there are men there as well, but an extraordinary number of the artists in this exhibit are women. And because my work focuses on women's narratives, I was noticing the women's texts. And what they're doing is what I like to call the cultural mash. They're mashing things up all over the place. It's very hard to say, this is American, this is Chinese, this is Korean, this is transnational. It's just coming together in interesting ways. But they are troubling or taking, they're blurring definitions of national identity and ethnicity. And so some of those texts, you will see a clear claiming of an American identity, as well as a claiming of Chinese or Asian identities. But the elements will be mixed up. And there's transnational identity, as well as a specific American and or Korean Chinese identity as well. So for me, when you get to the end of the book, the book starts in the 19th century with merchants' daughters and missionary women. By the time you get to the end of the book, you have more missionaries, but you also have a Chinese-American Ameri Chinese filmmaker who hosts a talk show about how to help women, Chinese women, be more bold about their sex lives. And you have um, Betty Wei, a woman who writes columns in the South China Morning Post, trying to help expatriate Americans get along with local Chinese, and helping different generations of Hong Kong Chinese come to terms with the increasing Americanization of Hong Kong. By now in my classroom, I have what we call the children of the brain drain. Between 1984, when the joint declaration was signed between the UK and between, basically between Margaret Thatcher and Deng Xiaoping in Beijing, saying that Hong Kong would go back 
under Chinese sovereignty in 1997. Beginning with that moment, right up until 1997, 800,000 people left Hong Kong and went to various places outside of Hong Kong, and a lot of those people came here. 83% of that 800,000 have now gone back to Hong Kong. Obviously, it's not the same 83%, but I think you get some sense of the cultural flows that are going back and forth between not just Hong Kong and the U.S., but between the greater China region and the Chinese diaspora. And that's just the Chinese diaspora. And we're not talking about the Korean diaspora and other groups that have moved as a result, not only of economic change, but wars and political unrest throughout Asia. So in the media right now, there's a lot of discussion about China. There's a fair amount of China bashing going on in the United States. There's discomfort, and rightfully so, with a two-year-old girl who was run over twice, two times in Guangdong. And there are sensationalist stories about what China is. But at the same time, what I can't help but see as a result of my work is how mixed up we are and we have always been, mixed up in good ways, the, the cultural mash that has gone on between the U.S. and Hong Kong and by, you know, by association China as well. So I think rather than bash, I think this exhibit reminds me that we're, we're all part of a cultural mash and Asian identities and Asian views and Asian people have been a part of the American experience literally from the beginning. And as a result of my time in Hong Kong and working on this book, I changed the way I teach U.S. history. It's impossible to teach U.S. history the same way once you really are aware of all the connections that do exist, not just between individual Americans who are moving from one place to another, but in terms of trade flows and labor flows and government programs, artistic exchanges. I could go on and on. You get the idea. I wanted to read um, one quote. As I said, the book talks about positive and negative interactions and encounters. But as I was walking through the exhibit yesterday and looking particularly at the portraits of Korean Americans that are on the walls outside, I thought of a woman that I quote in the book, Phoebe Ang. And Phoebe Ang has done a lot of work working with self-esteem among Asian Americans. And for purpose of this, purposes of this talk, I'm not making as clear as I should the distinction between people who are born in China or Asia and come here versus people who have been in the United States for many, many generations. There are important distinctions. There are not only generational dimensions between various families who deal with the immigrant experience, but native-born versus diaspora. There are all sorts of other nuances as well. But Phoebe Ang talks about her life in both the U.S. and in Hong Kong. She worked in both places. She says, My American roots would earn me the dubious label of Juxing, a foreign-born, literally a bamboo hollow brain, which, by the way, is not a Chinese compliment, with a faltering American tongue that tried in vain to sound truly Chinese and a Western swagger that hardly fit within the rules of how a good Chinese woman ought to walk. And my students always tell me, I can always tell an American woman because when she walks on the subway, she swaggers or she, she takes bigger strides or she takes up more space on the Hong Kong subway. Right, so I, when I see the swagger, I, I can relate. 
She says, I fell through the crack of an east-west divide. In fact, it was more like a vast, gaping crevasse. I didn't belong in Asia, so I came back to America, resolved to accept it as home. But back in America, I found that being an Asian-American woman means living behind layers of imagery, that of dutiful daughters and mothers, straight-A students and diligent workers, silent and exotic seductresses, tragic and self-sacrificing Madam Butterflies. With these images of marginality, Asian-American women as a group have, until now, been excluded from the core of most American dialogues. Even within a women's movement that is striving to be inclusive, we are an afterthought, an embellishment, if we exist at all. We struggle with our invisibility, and we share desires to be treated seriously, past stereotype. The exhibit hanging in the gallery here is a testament to the fact that we have, in so many ways, managed to move past stereotype. And yet, you still see that stereotypes remain, and there's a lot of unfinished business. The, um, there was actually a quote that was on the wall. I find it, yeah. There's a woman named Daisil Kim Gibbon out on the wall out there, and I felt like in some respects she could be the troubling American woman for today. She... Phoebe Ang talks about a time two decades ago, and I think a lot of the young women that I see who are exchange students coming to Hong Kong U from the U.S. would say, I don't relate completely to Ang's anger. I do feel like I can, you know, I can focus on what I want to focus on. I don't necessarily have to negotiate with familial expectations in the way that she talks about. I don't feel exoticized in the same way. And there we have moved on a bit. But what I like, um, Daiso Kim Gibson says, I believe the idea that the place of our births as the center of our universe is being dismantled, especially in the century of mass migration. The only way we can claim home again is to make every corner of the earth our home and to think of ourselves as human beings. So this is a phenomenal sentiment, and yet we live in a time where national identity is preserved as strongly as ever in some ways. And as Americans, we cling, and rightfully so at times, to our own identities and wanting to hang on to something unique or special or exceptional in a moment when we have to worry about economic competitiveness and real dangers in the world, and we have strong beliefs about authoritarian societies. So how do we keep this, you know, this beautiful vision in tension with the realities of our day-to-day -day world. The women in this book managed to balance, sometimes more successfully than others, but I think what I learned is the best way to start thinking about how we move forward is to really move beyond those borders and really you know, participate in as many cross-cultural encounters as we can. I think I'm going to stop here because I would love to take questions or see what's on your mind. I've thrown out all sorts of stuff, but I, uh, let's find out what's relevant here. And questions, comments? And if there are no questions or comments, I'm going to make the people who are involved with the exhibit talk to us a little bit about the exhibit, because it's fabulous.
This is a troubling American woman, by the way, <laughs> in every good way. It seems to, that's what it seems like to me. I'm, and I'm, part of the reason I'm delighted to be here is to get feet on the ground on this side of the pond right now, because from Asia, it does feel like the isolationist moment is not a moment. It's it's a it's a phase. So I don't know. I think I think there is. You know, there's, there's a concern. I think there's a concern on the Chinese side and in Hong Kong about you know, the fiscal viability of the U.S. economy, certainly. And then that, that has a knock-on effect culturally. And so I dwell mostly in the cultural realm, but I think the two are related. There's no doubt about that. So I don't know. What do you think? In terms of women specifically, yeah. Hong Kong women or American women in Hong Kong? American women in Hong Kong. I think American women in Hong Kong, I think that label is troubling itself. I don't know who is an American anymore. Yeah, I think there's, there's a stereotype of an American woman. And the book talks about it. I think in general, American women for the most part are seen in rather favorable terms. And there is a certain, there's, <laughs> we're sporty. We're sure of ourselves. <laughs> There is an admiration for a certain direct style, but there is a belief that American women go too far. They are too assertive. They don't know when to harmonize. And it's interesting because there are a group of very strong women politicians in Hong Kong who manage a very tough political environment, and they would say, well, you know, for Hillary Clinton, we're not going to cut it here. And it's been interesting to watch Hillary Clinton sort of change her style as she has dealt more with countries outside of the U.S. So sometimes I feel like Chinese women are very strategic. They learn to, the Chinese women in politics live to fight another day. They will do the harmony bit. And the Chinese translation for female politician is literally translated to handbag society. So these women carry designer handbags and they dress in very fashionable ways in order to not be threatening to the men. And as a result, they are respected. They are given a certain pride of place in the political sphere because they've seeded a certain battle. They're not going to be troubling in way number one. They're, they'll say, look, and they'll actually celebrate the gender difference. They will say, whether it's the yin-yang dynamic or they'll say we are softer, they will very intentionally manage that dynamic. And that connects to younger women in the US who have issues and anxieties, and women in conservative, on, on the conservative side who have issues with feminism. So I think there is, there's a critique of American feminism as well as stereotypes of American women embedded in Asian women's stories and Asian men's reactions to American women. But in terms of what's happening in Hong Kong right now, I think you have, what I see is my local Chinese women students <coughs> performing American-ness in ways that many of my American students coming to Hong Kong don't. 
So what is perceived to be American is in flux all the time. It's changing and it's highly mobile. And those stereotypes, um, they can be a way to keep women in their place, too. And that's, that's something that is hard for me. In fact, I sometimes have to take a break. I laugh about, I'm not very good at harmonizing, so I have to leave, <laughs> you know. Um, but I, I think there is something to learning how to harmonize. Speaking of harmony, you talk about the culture of harmony in Hong Kong. Is that pretty much the same as what these ladies experienced then? I mean, is it a, a general cultural thing? Yes. Is it primarily the women or the men, or is the whole culture like that? Do you, do you try to get along? You try. It's not just that these ladies were sticking out in the fact that they're not harmonizing as a female. Right. Right. Society yeah. I think there's definitely a, a whole societal ethos. I think the reason I focus on women, and by the way, there's a book to be written about troubling American men. And men can be troubling too in all sorts of other ways. And sometimes I think about writing about that, but I think there are men who are actually better qualified to do that. Um, so you raise a really important point. I think there is a general expectation, first of all, that foreigners, and, and foreigners are given wide berth, particularly Caucasian foreigners. So my phenotypically Asian-American colleagues are expected to speak Cantonese and English and Mandarin at this point. If I make the slightest attempt to speak any Chinese, like I'm literally applauded when I go to conferences in the mainland if I speak the slightest phase. So white girls get a, a lot of flexibility and it, it's a very privileged world. Having said that, I think there is, there's, Har you know, harmony good, which is let's all get along. And then there's still, there's a patriarchal ethos which says women still, they may go to work, they may lead out, they may be in, in the political sphere, but they are responsible still for the home front. And what's happened in Hong Kong is you have sort of the importation of domestic helpers, originally from the Philippines, but now from Indonesia and other places in Southeast Asia. So whereas in the United States, men and women are arguing about who's going to take out the trash, that argument is over in Hong Kong, in, and not just in the elite levels, but I would say in a large swath of the middle class as well. Because you can bring in mostly women from poorer countries to do domestic labor. So the harmony, harmony is preserved because we're not really having the friction around gender roles in Hong Kong that we had for a long time in the U.S. and that I still think we're having here to some extent. Because we've passed it on to a, another class of people to take care of that, so in fact they haven't dealt with it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. There is a third group. And again, a lot of times it's about self-naming. And it's interesting to look <coughs> at crisis periods. So for instance, during World War II, you have women who were born in the US or born in China. Basically, they have US passports. And they may have been literally days in one place before moving to another. But you have a, a lot of ethnically Chinese women, both Chinese American and Hong Kong-born Chinese, or mainland Chinese women who have US passports basically flushing passports 
and passing as being ethnically Chinese. Other, a woman in the book named Eleanor Tom is an interesting example. She is somebody, she's born in the U.S. and is educated truly biculturally in both Hong Kong and the U.S. <coughs> and she, she identifies as Chinese. In the, the Eurasian community sort of clumps in different places. Eurasians in Macau, which is next door to Hong Kong, will tend to associate with Chinese identities much more than Western identities. It becomes more of a mixed bag on the island. And <laughs> if you have you know, British connections as opposed to American connections, sometimes the identification is different. But what I think we can say at this point is that local Chinese people see ABCs differently. I didn't even know what the term ABC was until I came to Hong Kong. And that is American-born Chinese, right? I, would, I knew Chinese-American, I knew Asian-American. But the way my local students look at Chinese-American women is it's quite striking. It really is. And I went to Hong Kong thinking, oh, I will be able to connect with my Hong Kong students around questions of migration and diaspora and hybrid identities. And my Hong Kong Chinese students said, no. <laughs> We're, and when, when Ang talks about juxing, you know, bamboo or banana, there is still, that's starting to break down a little bit because we have more and more students from all over the world in our classrooms. But there is still a very clear view of American-born Chinese women as being different from Hong Kong-born or mainland-born who go for periods of time. And again, some of that is women get to identify. They get to speak their narratives and determine who they are, <laughs> but only to a point. There's still a lot of labeling going on. Does that answer the yeah, question? Other questions? You've been super quiet and super intense. What questions do you have? Come on. No. I've said something that must have struck a chord somewhere. Really? Okay, well, I'm going to ask you a question. Why are you here? You're like the only person I haven't met, except I haven't met you. So what brings you here today? Well, thank you for coming, really. No questions from Katie? Uh, you talked about the government uh, sponsoring films and things like that yeah. in the 60s and 60s, right? Is there still something like that happening today with the government still trying to build cultural understandings uh, yeah. going down the same path? Or? Um, yes. Some people would say the Fulbright program at my university is that. I think it's much more subtle. And I think also it's about the commercial influence. De facto Americanization has happened through business in so many ways in Hong Kong. I think there is a concern right now. The currency issue is huge in Hong Kong. And you have the American, the American business community in Hong Kong as well as the U.S. government in Hong Kong are very concerned about getting... Americans in the U.S. to understand what China is doing. So when I talked before about China bashing or demonization, Hong Kong sits in this interesting place where it really does try to get the mainland and the West, and I would include Europe as well in this conversation, that Hong Kong wants to help everybody get along. And by the way, I think this is a function that, Ellie, welcome. I think this is a function that Asian Americans perform everywhere they go. They end up having to bridge in a certain way. And there are, there are some who don't 
want to take that role on. But there is a burden of representation around being ethnically Chinese in this moment of time where whether you like it or not, you have, you know, you speak for two cultures. Even if you don't identify with that culture, sometimes you're seen as Mm. And how long have you been doing it, and how do you feel about it? About the two cultures living in China sounds difficult. <laughs> you know, it's well, and, and Hong Kong. Dan Rather said at one point, "Hong Kong is Asia for beginners," <laughs> and I think he's, I, I think he's not wrong about that. I think what you see on the surface is not what's really underneath. But I went there, honestly, I followed my husband. I am the trailing spouse in a certain way. And we moved originally, I finished my graduate work, and we moved to Madrid. And we were in Spain, and he had a Hong Kong business, a, a business trip to Hong Kong, and he called me on the phone and he said, you would really like Hong Kong. I think you would really like living here, which is code for, I really, really want to live here. And now let's see if we can make this work for you. And so he, he did. And his company actually helped me get an interview with Hong Kong U. And so I started out teaching one class. And honestly, we were there for two years, and then I was back here. And I am part of a, a, a lovely extended family network who comprise a lot of the audience today. And so I went kicking and screaming in a certain way. And over time, I what I think happens is if Hong Kong can grab me, it can grab anybody. <laughs> because I was really, I still am very US identified. And I think what happens is Hong Kong was an incredibly welcoming place and there were opportunities. I've had more opportunities as an academic in Hong Kong than I would have had here, honestly, because I did want to have a family life as well. And I think when I look at what people on the tenure track <laughs> here are having to, to deal with, I think it is a kinder, gentler life in some ways professionally for academics in Hong Kong. So I was able to combine. Carolyn and Ellie have both had experiences as academics in Hong Kong and they can speak to that as well. But I, we actually, it became home and it didn't happen naturally and I actually felt at home for the first time after the SARS epidemic. This is my son, my oldest son, Tyler, will tell you, I've had a very ambivalent relationship with Hong Kong. But during the SARS epidemic, a lot of the expatriates left. And I went to my boss in the history department at Hong Kong U. And I said, OK, Kitching, I'm a little worried. There's all this discussion about maybe it's just a good thing to go. And my children's school had shut down. They were doing virtual school. Everything was online. And she looked at me square in the eye, and she said, you're such a phony. <laughs> and I said, excuse me? <laughs> she said, well, you talk all the time about this great experience and how we can all get along and the cross-cultural encounter. And you know, look at all these people that have no choice. They don't get to leave Hong Kong. Just because you can get on a plane and go, does that mean you really should? And so I thought about that. And my husband and I decided that we would stay. And as a result, I got to see it was, it was the one time in my life in Hong Kong where it really didn't, it seemed to matter so much less who you were ethnically. What language you spoke, it was about coming together. It was, you know, doctors and nurses who ended up dying to take care of patients. It was about people being forthcoming about what was going on. And Hong Kong, 
acted in a much different way than the mainland did. There's a lot of mainland bashing that goes on in Hong Kong, so I, you know, I have to be careful there. But the way that Hong Kong was committed to transparency about the worst possible news about SARS while still trying to be hopeful was really extraordinary. So I think there's something really quite special about Hong Kong. And for a little place, I, it doesn't get written about a lot. There was a lot of media around 1997, but it really does punch above its weight globally in terms of what it does. And I don't think people appreciate that. So it's a long answer to your question, but I think I didn't appreciate it for a long time. I was wound in bit by bit. Husband was grabbed much more immediately. And there are people, there are China people, you know, there are you know, the China, China hands, right? We talk about people who know almost from the beginning that that's what they want. For me, I really was that troubling American woman. It took me a while. I think it's I think it's harder in the business world. I think it's much harder. I think in acad in academe, you're allowed. You're supposed to be a little bit iconoclastic. I think it's hardest. My students will say, "You taught us all these things in American studies, and we go to work in Hong Kong, and people don't really appreciate the you know <laughs> the critical thinking or the direct approach." So. I think what's harder are for, for folks who feel like they want to Americanize to a certain extent, but they also have to blend with you know, the harmony ethos in Hong Kong. And you have a situation right now where you have a lot of Hong Kong-born students who were educated all the way up in the U.S. or the U.K., and they are coming back and taking jobs with multinationals, not just Ameri U.S. companies, but multinationals. They're taking jobs away from... Hong Kong U students and other students who have stayed in Hong Kong for their education. So it's sort of the reverse. We have all this anxiety in the U.S. about their taking our jobs, <laughs> right? Or our jobs are going offshore. I think there's an anxiety among localized students who are not so Americanized or not so Westernized about how they will compete in this new global economy, in not just in Hong Kong, but in, this is happening increasingly in Shanghai and in Beijing and in the Guangdong region as well. So, thank you. Nicole, do you want to say anything about the exhibit as you wind oh, up yeah, here? That's what I was going to say. I was going to, one, thank you very much thank you. Uh, for coming today and joining us. You did a wonderful thank you. Thank you.